0: Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 as we continue going through the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 25 through 37 this morning. And As you turn there, let me just uh, express uh, my thanks uh, to this church and allowing me to to pursue this this degree that just uh, came to completion and uh, not everyone who is in ministry has the the privilege of serving in a church that's so incredibly supportive. This church has allowed me, and and Bethany Baptist, before Bethany Community, allowed me to pursue this degree with my time, and even uh, financially assisting me in being able to do this, and so um, this is kind of a a group degree, you know, it's our our church, uh, hopefully being able to use this uh, for God's greater glory and uh, the the better, more faithful uh, proclamation of his word, and so let's, let's continue that proclamation of his word this morning, and please stand with me as we look at Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37 verse 25 begins and behold a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying a teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life he said to him what is written the law how do you read it he answered you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul "'with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself.' And he said to him, "'You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live.' But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, "'And who is my neighbor?' Jesus replied, "'A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, "'and he fell among robbers, who stripped him, and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead.' And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. You may be seated. May God be glorified through his word this morning let's pray father we are so grateful to come together as your church to worship you this morning i pray that you help us to worship you in both spirit and in truth as we look at the story help, help us to have hearts that are receptive to your word and allow us to enact the, the changes through the work of your holy spirit that we need to enact as a result of this passage and we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name, amen. A week and a half ago, I had the privilege of attending Christian Alliance for Orphans annual conference, their, their summit. And at this conference, there were 1,500 people who, about 1,500 people from all over the United States, all over the globe, who are engaged and, and passionate in, about caring for the orphan. As I interacted with some of these people, I encountered incredible story after incredible story of people who were engaged in ministries of mercy. I met people who are working in their community to bring home or put into to homes every child in the foster care system in their community or state. I met people who are engaged in in trying to empty out orphanages. I met people who are working in in very squalid conditions across the globe in order to meet the spiritual and physical needs of fatherless children. I encountered individuals, it wasn't rare in fact for me to encounter individuals who had brought home, into their home out of the foster care system or through adoption, brought home 9, 10, 11 or more children. That was commonplace there at the conference. In fact, I was talking with one individual, one young man, at, at breakfast one time and at the conference, and I said, so, so tell me, how do you decide what ministries you're going to get engaged in? How, how do you decide what to do out of all those options that are out there? He says, well, essentially I do this. Whenever my wife comes to me, and we're, we're talking about, about caring for the orphan, and she begins a sentence, do you think we should? He says, I answer, yeah, I do. It says, it doesn't matter how she finishes that sentences. Uh, sentence. Do you think we should adopt a child from Ethiopia? Yeah, I do. Do you think we should give financially to this couple who is considering adoption? Yeah, I do. Do you think we should go on this mission trip? Yeah, I do. He says, whatever we have the means to be able to do as God brings needs to our attention, we do them. Over and over again at the conference, I encountered stories of incredible acts of compassion, people bringing into their homes children with severe mental or physical needs, adopting children with HIV or AIDS, and and just amazing acts of compassion. And, And here's my point. Extraordinary acts of compassion should be commonplace among those who've received eternal life. In fact, that's the central point of what I want to say this morning. Incredible acts of compassion should be commonplace among those who have received eternal life. Among those in this room who have received God's eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ alone, stories of incredible compassion should become rather mundane, Not mundane in the sense that they are watching worlds and say, wow, that's amazing, but among this church, among those who are part of the community of faith, as over and over again we respond with hearts of compassion in incredible ways, it should become commonplace as we meet the spiritual and physical needs of the people that God brings into our lives. This morning we're looking at the story of of the Good Samaritan. And really, the story of the Good Samaritan is a a story within a story. It's a parable that occurs in a larger story about an interaction between Jesus and a scribe, a, a lawyer. And as we look at this story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we realize that we're taking on a story that is very well known in our culture. In our culture, in fact, the term Samaritan is synonymous with one who shows compassion, right? You have Samaritan ministries, you have Samaritan's purse, you have uh, Good Samaritan laws. We're very familiar with the events that take place in this story of the Good Samaritan, and actually, that can be an obstacle, I believe, in helping us understand what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about. We come to the story and we say, yeah, I know, lawyer asks Jesus this question, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, three guys uh, come across this, this guy that's, that's been hurt, and only one guy responds, It's the a Samaritan and I need to go do, do the same thing. We read through the story so quickly because we're so familiar with all the details, and that can be an obstacle in helping us rightly understand what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about. Another obstacle that we have is that the, the culture in which this story occurs is a culture that's very foreign to us. We aren't first century Jews, and so some of the things that are taking place in this parable of the Good Samaritan aren't quite familiar to us, and so we're going to need to talk about some of those issues as we look at the story of the Good Samaritan. I want to acknowledge my my debt this morning to uh, Dr. Mark Young. He's one of the first people I heard uh, talk about this parable of the Good Samaritan in in, in detail, and Many of my thoughts have been shaped by a lecture that he gave in a seminary class as well. And so uh, Dr. Mark Young gets a co-credit, I think, for writing uh, this, this sermon this morning. But anyway, uh, again, the main point that I hope that you walk away with this morning as we look about the, at the story between Jesus, this conversation between Jesus and this lawyer, is that incredible acts of compassion should be commonplace among those of us who received eternal life. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story. We're going to see this interaction between Jesus and the lawyer. We're going to look at the story of the parable, and then we're going to look at some points of application. Well, let's first look at the lawyer and the parable. And again, if you're not already there, look at verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. Luke tells us, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now." Let's think about the cultural context here. Whenever you and I hear the word lawyer, we have sometimes a, a negative reaction, especially as we're thinking about the first century context. We, we know the lawyers and the scribes and the Pharisees were people who were often hostile to Jesus. That's not the way that people in the story would have looked at lawyers, A lawyer wasn't someone who was engaged in in litigation or or interpreting Roman law. A lawyer in first century Judaism was a person who was well-versed in Scripture, had the ability to read it, and had also been well-versed in how to interpret it, and was also involved not just in the reading of it, the reciting of it, the interpretation of it, but helping people take God's law, Scripture, and all the traditions that they had developed surrounding the Scripture and apply it in their everyday lives. So a lawyer was a very important person in this community. Remember, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. So what's happening here is as he's entering this town... What would sometimes take place when a teacher entered a town is that the hometown teacher would engage in what's called a rabbinic dialogue, a conversation between two rabbis, two teachers. So Jesus enters this community, and as a sign of respect, the hometown guy, this hometown lawyer, engages Jesus in a conversation, a rabbinic dialogue, he stands up and in a sign of respect calls Jesus teacher. And there would have been people surrounding them listening to their interaction, trying to learn from them. Here's how the conversation was supposed to, co- to go. The hometown lawyer is, is here, and the hometown guy, the hometown teacher, was supposed to ask a very general, broad question. Then the visiting teacher, the visiting rabbi, would respond with a general answer. So, very broad question, very broad answer. Then, the hometown guy, the hometown teacher, was supposed to ask a more specific question based upon the answer that the teacher, the traveling, gave. And then, the traveling teacher would give a more specific answer. Then, more specific question than more specific answer and so forth and so forth and so on until they were dealing with kind of the nitty-gritty applicational aspects of the law. That's what was supposed to happen. Jesus doesn't follow the rule very well here. Jesus comes into this area and the lawyer stands up And it says, the text says, he he stood up to put him to the test, to, to test his orthodoxy. How well does he understand and have the ability to apply the law in the right way? The lawyer stands up, looks at Jesus, and broad question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's not asking necessarily, how do I get saved? His assumption would have been that he was already part of the community of faith. He's a lawyer, for crying out loud. He's part of the the Jewish Orthodox community of faith. His assumption would have been that he's already in the in-group. His question is more, how can I be assured, how can I be confident that I'm going to achieve eternal life, that I'm going to participate in the resurrection from the dead that we see Daniel describe, for example, in Daniel chapter 12. The lawyer's asking Jesus, how can I be assured that As a part of the community of faith, I'm going to be in that that group of righteous people who participate in the resurrection from the dead. How can I be confident and be assured that I'm part of that group? And Jesus, everyone surrounding them, listening to them talk, Jesus was supposed to give a very broad answer. That's not what Jesus does, is it? Look at the text. What does Jesus do instead? It says that he asks a question back. Sort of a shocking thing for the people to hear Jesus do this. He says, well, what do you think? What's written in the law? How how do you recite it or how do you read it? Jesus is, instead of being the one who is having his orthodoxy scrutinized, is, is challenging this hometown lawyer. The lawyer goes for it. He responds. Now, he gives a very broad answer. What does he say? He said, well, you shall love the Lord your God. This is verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's his answer. And then Jesus responds and says, yeah, yeah, that's it. Do that. Go do that, lawyer, and, and, and you'll live. Jesus has really not followed protocol here. He's cut the conversation short at a very broad point of the discussion that was supposed to be getting more and more specific. And furthermore, what began as a conversation to test Jesus' orthodox understanding has now ended in a challenge by Jesus to the lawyer to go do what he said he needed to do to inherit eternal life. The lawyer has to be on his heels at this point going, whoa, 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 what happened here? In fact, maybe some of us, as we hear Jesus' response, are also a little discombobulated. (laughs) Wait, wait, what do you mean, Jesus? You were supposed to say, to receive eternal life, you weren't supposed to say, yeah, go do that and live. You were supposed to say, uh, reject all forms of works righteousness and, and place your faith in me. In fact, this would have been a great time, Jesus, for an altar call. You know? Right now, wherever you are, Jewish people, I'd like you to come forward and pray with me to receive eternal life. That's not what Jesus does here. Why not? Is Jesus advocating, yeah, do things in order to be saved, do things in order to have a right relationship with God? No, he's not. Let's look more closely at the lawyer's answer. We're going to flip through a couple passages in Scripture together here. Look, again, look first, though, again at verse 27. I want you to watch this very carefully. The lawyer gives this answer to his own question. Remember, his question was, how do you inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what do you think? What does the Bible say? What does Scripture say? And the lawyer responds with this answer in verse 27. And this answer in verse 27 is actually combining two different biblical texts. He says, firstly, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, okay? That is from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. Then he says, love your neighbors yourself. That second, ans- that second part of his answer is from Leviticus 19. I want us to look at both of these texts very quickly. In fact, keep your finger in Luke chapter 10. And if you would, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And let's look at this passage that the lawyer cites as he answers the question, how do you receive eternal life? In other words, how do you have assurance that you're going to be part of the resurrection of the righteous? Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 begins the most famous passage of scripture for the jewish faith the cornerstone of the jewish faith in fact it begins what we call the shema and shema is a hebrew word meaning hear or listen he says in verse four hear o israel shema israel the lord our god the lord is one Now, remember the context in which Deuteronomy 6 is written. Moses and the people of Israel are encamped on the plains of Moab. They're getting ready to go into the promised land and take it over from the Canaanites. The Canaanites are polytheists, and and they're engaged in all sorts of terrible things as they worship these false gods. And so the Shema, the cornerstone of the Jewish faith, a prayer that would be recited twice a day, begins with a doctrinal affirmation of who God is. Shema Israel. Listen, Israel, pay attention. Give heed to these words and obey them. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh is not a bunch of different gods. Yahweh is one God, and he's our God, and he's the true God. It begins with that affirmation of the character of God. And then there is a response demanded by the people in Deuteronomy six, in the Shema. "The Lord our God, the Lord is one," verse four. How do they respond? Verse five, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might." These words that I command you today, verse six, shall be on your heart." What is He calling them to here in Deuteronomy chapter six? Moses is calling the people to rightly recognize who Yahweh God is and then respond with hearts of love and faith and submission to his authority. That's what was supposed to happen as a person understood who God was. The call in the Shema, the call in this passage that the lawyer cites, is not a call to works-based righteousness, but to hearts of faith and complete commitment to Yahweh God. In fact, let me quote another, relate another story that happens in Jesus's ministry. You don't have to turn there if, if you wouldn't like. Uh, but Mark chapter 12, there's another interaction between Jesus and a scribe. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus and these, uh, these Sadducees are talking about the resurrection, and a scribe hears them arguing, and, and he listens to Jesus and says, wow, Jesus is doing a great job here. Jesus really understands the law. And so the scribe asks Jesus in Mark twelve twenty eight, what commandment is the most important of all? And in verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel. He again quotes Deuteronomy 6. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength. The second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And so Jesus also points this scribe to Deuteronomy 6 saying that's the, the essence of the law is having faith and trust and love in God. Verse 32, the scribe says, You're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all understanding with the strength and to love one's neighbor oneself, listen is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices and Mark tells us Jesus saw that he answered him wisely and said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God in other words, Jesus is saying this passage in Deuteronomy 6 isn't about pursuing eternal life on the basis of one's works. It's about pursuing eternal life through faith in God, recognizing his authority, submitting to his lordship, and placing one's complete devotion on God. We've seen this elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke. For example, Luke eight 21. I'm sorry, Luke... Um, Luke 7, and Luke 7, remember the sinful woman comes before Jesus and Jesus says that her sins are forgiven because she loved much. In verse 50 he says to the woman, your, your faith has saved you, go in peace. In other words, that faith and love are synonymous terms or, or, or overlapping terms in the gospel of Luke. What I'm saying is this, here in verse 27 of, of Luke chapter 10, you can turn back there, what Jesus is doing is he's not saying you're right in advocating works-based righteousness, you're right that loving God, having faith in God, trusting in him alone, is the, the cornerstone to eternal life. It's, it's how eternal life begins. The other passage that the lawyer quotes here is from Leviticus 19, 17 through 18, really verse 18, That says in verse 18, do not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In other words, as you engage in relationships with other people and they do things that are wrong to you, you are not to respond in kind, but instead you are to respond in love. You are to look at your neighbor and have the same concern for him or her that you would have for yourself. Some people have looked at Jesus' words here, and they've looked at Leviticus 19. They've said, you know what? Uh, There's an implicit command here to love ourselves. They've said, well, for me to begin to love you, i got to love me first. That's ridiculous. (laughs) You have no trouble loving yourself. Your problem is that you love yourself to the exclusion of loving other people. There is no command explicitly in Scripture saying, hey, you know what, Uh, I've just, Paul doesn't write to the church in Corinth and say, you know what, guys, I'm really concerned. I just don't see any self-love in your church. (laughs) What's the problem? Over and over again, the problem in Scripture is not a love for other people, a concern for the benefit of others. So, the lawyer has quoted these two commandments, and Jesus says you're exactly right. It's the same thing he said elsewhere in Luke. Luke 6, 46, he says, asks people, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Luke 8, 21, he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. In other words, Jesus is being consistent in his teaching here. A love for God is the same as, as a faith and a trust in God on the basis of his authority, and a love for God manifests itself in care for others. And if a person lacks obedience to God and a care for other people, that's a very strong indication that they have not rightly responded to the gospel message. The lawyer doesn't get it look at verse 29 so jesus has just said remember there's the the lawyer began the conversation trying to test jesus's orthodoxy by asking a question jesus messes the whole thing up and asks him a question then he's responded with his very broad statement or this this very specific statement you go do that and you'll live the lawyer recognizes the conversation has slipped away from him now the responsibility is on him to, to 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 justify himself and very telling words, he wanted, desired to justify himself. He wanted to be seen as part of the in-group, as part of the, the group that had rightly obeyed these two commandments. And so he tries to justify himself. And he says, well, who's my neighbor? Who is, who's, what's he trying to do? He's trying to redefine the term neighbor so he can raise his hand and say, I, I, I've done that, I've done that. As we are in Louisville this last week, um, for those of you who've ever traveled and, and spent a week and a half with, with children on the road, you know the joys that, that our family experienced the last week and a half. Now, uh, my children have inherited from me and observed in me some, of the, some, some very disturbing uh, sinful tendencies, and, and one of those is, is to uh, desire things for oneself, right? We made this new rule as we traveled, and the new rule was you can't ask for anything for yourself, okay? So whether it's a a turn playing the computer, it's a turn in a certain seat, or it's something you want to watch, you want to watch, you want a snack or something, you can't ask for yourself. That was the rule we made while we were traveling. Instead, you had to ask for another person. So, mom, can my sister have a snack? Mom, can my sister have a turn on the computer? mom, can my brother please sit in the best seat? Okay, it sounds great, right? But you know what my brilliant children did, right? They conspired with one another. Hey, I'm going to ask for you to get a snack. You ask for me to use the computer, okay? Why? Well, because we had established some rules trying to get at the heart of the issue, a heart of selfishness, and my children struggle with the same sin nature that I do, and so the rule was followed pretty well, but the heart wasn't always getting the message. Very oftentimes, as we look at the words of God in Scripture, we say, I want to consider myself as being obedient to that, therefore I'm going to need to do some redefining of terms here. God says to, to be generous, and so now my definition of generosity is, is giving 10%. I've given 10%, and therefore I'm a generous person. Or uh, I know that Scripture says that, that I shouldn't lust, and so here are some behaviors that indicate a person's lusting, and I'm not doing any of those behaviors. Therefore, my, my heart is pure, and it doesn't matter what's going on in my mind. It doesn't matter how discontent I am with my spouse, my husband, or my wife. I, I'm not lusting. Or we say, anger, anger means for a person to yell at other people and to throw things. I don't yell at other people. I don't throw things around. Therefore, I've kept God's law. Even if I'm harboring bitterness and and upset with other people in my heart. And we don't call it anger. I'm just upset. I'm frustrated. The lawyer recognizes he's in a pickle. Jesus has said, you go and do this. And he will say, I've already done it. He says, well, well, Jesus, who do you think my neighbor is? He wants to define, in fact, there was a rabbinic uh, phrase that that took place that that was uh, common in in the culture some some years later. And it was, uh, the the phrase went something like, um, "Know, know whom you're helping and do not help the sinner. The lawyer wants to be able to say, I, I've helped the people that I'm supposed to help. I've, I've loved the neighbor that I'm supposed to help. I've helped the, my righteous neighbor. Those who are part of the community of faith. And So in response to that phrase, that question by the lawyer, Jesus tells the parable. The parable begins in verse 30. And by the way, remember there's an audience surrounding Jesus and the lawyer talking. This has been a very interesting conversation for them to listen to This Jesus guy hasn't followed any of the rules you're supposed to when talking to a rabbi, and now, instead of asking a more specific question or giving a more specific answer, this guy starts telling a story. They would have been riveted. What's he saying? What's his point? Here's the story Jesus tells. A man, not a Jewish man, not a Samaritan. We don't know anything about this man. We just know his gender and his age within several decades. This man, this unidentified man, begins a trip. He's, he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and Jericho isn't south. It's, it's kind of northeast of Jerusalem, but it's but it's a, a lower elevation. In fact, if you begin the journey in Jerusalem, you're uh, some uh, 2,600 miles feet above sea level then you travel down to 800 something feet below sea level as you hit Jericho so this this guy is is traveling in this downward direction he goes from Jerusalem to Jericho and the people in G- that are listening to the story as Jesus said that would have gone he's doing what that's kind of a dangerous journey he's having to pass through this very dangerous past where there were some caves and and robbers lived among those and so why is he traveling all by himself well Jesus doesn't tell them that but he says and he fell among robbers and the people that are listening to Jesus tell the story will go said well of course he did what's this moron doing traveling that route alone this certain man falls among robbers and listen to what the robbers did to him they stripped him that is they took off his clothing so he couldn't be identified by his clothing any longer they beat him therefore his facial features are unrecognizable he couldn't be identified by his face any longer And they left him half dead. In other words, he's unresponsive. They can't communicate with him. He can't tell people whom he is. Here's this guy lying on the road who is unidentifiable. And so the question of the parable becomes, who is this guy that is unrecognizable, is unidentifiable, and cannot say who he is? Whose neighbor is this man? He falls outside of any nice, neat boundaries and characteristics. Here's just this guy on a road in need. Jesus says, first of all, a priest comes. A priest would have been the very pinnacle of Jewish society. Descendant of Aaron, engaged in priestly ministry. He's going down that road, he says, by chance. In other words, this guy catches a lucky break. The priest, however, sees him and passes by on the other side. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about why did he do that? Did he not want to defile himself? We don't know. All we know is that he saw this person in need and refused to help him. He had no inward compulsion to do so. And it tells us something about the condition of his heart. Verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 32, tells us. Likewise, a Levite, a Levite's coming to the place. He sees him, and again, has no inward compulsion to help him, and he passes by on the other side. Now, here's what's going on in Jesus' audience's mind, minds, okay? Pinnacle of Jewish culture, priest, descendant of Aaron, engaged in priestly duties, uh, Levites, uh, part of the, the, the tribe of, of Levi, so still engaged in helping people worship God. Not a priest, but still pretty important. Now, the next rung on the social ladder should have been a, a Jewish male. Jesus wanted to get really creative. He could have done like a, you know, a, a Jewish female. Instead, Jesus goes right to the bottom. He goes like below germs and dirt and scum and says, and a Samaritan. Shock. Oh, who? Did he say Samaritan? No, I don't think so. Now, a Samaritan, listen, as he journeyed, came to the spot where this unidentifiable man was, and something different happens within the Samaritan. He sees him, and he had compassion. Compassion is that that inward compulsion in a person as they see another person in need, this inner desire to meet those needs that another person has. It's it's this almost agonizing response, this, this response of agony as one sees another human being in need. And the Samaritan has it. The Levite and the priest do not. And this this compassion isn't just an emotional response, it's this inward response to need that causes the Samaritan to meet that need. Verse 34 says, he went to him, he bound up his wounds, he poured on oil and wine, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day... His care continues. He takes out two denarii, gives them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This inward compassion of the Samaritan causes him to say, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to meet this person's need. In fact, there's an open account. Anything you expend upon caring for this man, I will meet that need. And then Jesus asks the question back to the lawyer. So, of these three, which of them do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The question goes on its head. Remember, the original question is, who gets this type of love? I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Now, who, who listen, who is the person who gets, gets that kind of love? Who is the neighbor? Who's in that category? Jesus turns the question on its head, right? The question isn't who gets that type of love. The question is who gives that type of love? And it's the person who has received eternal life. It's a person that's compassionate. The, Samaritan, uh, the lawyer says, well... He won't even say the word Samaritan. That one, that dude, that guy, who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and and do likewise. Let me give you three applications from this parable. Remember, I believe that the central truth of this parable is that incredible acts of compassion should be commonplace among those who've received eternal life. Application point number one is this. The one who has eternal life loves God and loves their neighbor. The one who has received eternal life loves God and loves their neighbor. This truth combats really two errors in the world, in the Christian world, those who would claim to be religious. First of all, this truth that one who has eternal life loves God and loves their neighbor uh, counteracts the idea that one can achieve eternal life on the basis of works. Notice the cause and effect here. One doesn't love God and love their neighbor to receive eternal life. Rather, the person who's received eternal life is going to love God and love their neighbor. It also counteracts the idea that you can be a recipient of eternal life and yet have no love for God and no love for your neighbor. If you say this morning, you know what, I've been a recipient of eternal life, I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ, I've entered it into the family of God, and yet there's no love of God and no love for your neighbor, you are lying to yourself. 1 John, as we're going through that in our Sunday school classes, reveals this truth. 1 John 2 9 through 11 says, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John chapter 3, you can write down 1 John chapter 3 verses 7 through 19. It talks about this love for God and this love for neighbor and how the one who has God's righteousness has a love for one another. This is verse 11 of chapter 3 of 1 John. This is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth knoweth. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God and anyone who does not love does not know God. God. The lawyer who asks this question, as he asks the question, as the words come out of his mouth, who is my neighbor, it reveals that his heart has not been transformed. The very idea that you have to ask the question reveals that you don't understand the original answer, right? Imagine if you're in the workplace and your boss calls you and the three other employees that work in, in your group together and says, guys, uh, times are tough. <laughs> in fact, he looks at the guy to the right of you, I'm having to lay you off for three months. The rest of us really need to get our act together. We need to do everything we can to, to cut costs and, and to work hard and, and to turn this group profitable again so we can bring this guy back and and the next three months are going to be go time for us, and, and this is going to be really, really tough, and, and, you know, you all applaud, that's great, boss, and then the other guys leave and say, hey, boss, I wonder if I could talk to you for a minute, I need a raise, what do you think? The very fact that you ask the question reveals that you didn't understand the conversation that just took place. When the lawyer says, and who is my neighbor, it reveals the fact that he doesn't even understand the principle that he's just articulated from Leviticus 19, He doesn't understand what it truly means to to love one's neighbor. The believer, the one who's received eternal life, is a person that has this inward compulsion to love others. They're they're eager to serve. They they have this desire to meet the physical and the spiritual needs of others. I was in uh, Louisville this last uh, week, as I mentioned before, and as I was, uh, one morning I I got up early. I said, you know, I, I saw this really nice track about half a mile off at this a Christian school, a, a religious institution. I'm going to go over and, and just run some laps around this track. And I I got there early in the morning, you know, before school would start or anything. And I, all around the, the track, just this gorgeous track. The gates were locked. And and I understand wanting to keep your things nice, but it says something to the people around you whenever you say, you know what, this is my stuff. Can you imagine someday standing before God and saying, God? I'd like you to see my nice track. We didn't let all the undesirables like that pastor guy from Peoria get on our track. <laughs> or someday stand before God and say, God, have you seen how nice my home is? My home is really nice. I've invested a lot of money in it, and I didn't, you know, didn't let any people with kids come over and mess everything up. God, have you seen how nice my car is? God, look at this healthy bank account. Oh, I loved my neighbor because loving my neighbor meant doing one, two, and three. The one who has eternal life loves God and loves their neighbor they has this, this eagerness, this inner desire to help meet the needs of other people. The impact of this truth should be that, that legalism is rendered obsolete. There's no need for lists. There's no list for, need for rules. There's no need for, for comparisons between other people. Instead, there's this inner desire, I want to meet needs, I want to meet needs. I love God and I love others. second truth of application is this. The one who has eternal life Has an unlimited concept of who their neighbor is. And Mr. Rogers, I heard Mike sing last week. I'm not going to sing Mike, uh, but no applause now. There's that song that Mr. Rogers sings from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. If you grew up listening to Mr. Rogers or watching Mr. Rogers, you know, won't you please, won't you be, please, won't you be, please, won't you be my neighbor? Won't you be, won't you please, please, won't you be my neighbor? Kind of this invitation come and, and be a part of my my mr rogers neighborhood that's not how the christian views neighbors is it the believer has an unlimited concept of, of who their neighbor is there's not a, a dividing line well here's the righteous and here's the people that i'll meet their needs and then here are the people who aren't righteous i uh, hear the people who have brought poverty on themselves here are the, the wicked poor. Here are the, the wicked people who are in need. And, and they've brought this sin upon them, this, this uh, situation on themselves because of their sin. Now, therefore, I have no compulsion, no need, and no desire to meet their needs. The Christian says, I have an unlimited concept of who my neighbor is. Now, how I help my neighbor may change based upon the circumstances that brought them to that situation they're in right now, but that inward desire to meet their need, the believer has no boundaries on who they will work to meet their needs. That compassion that God calls them to have is a universal compassion. Let me just read you some statistics that should concern you. The richest 20% of the world the, rich, the richest 20% of individuals in the world consume 80% of all goods. You say, wow, those richest 20% of the people in this room, most of us are part of that richest 20%. If you make over $15,000 a year or have over $15,000 in assets, you're part of that richest 20%. Those of us who are in that richest 80, uh, 20% consume 80% of the world's good goods. Americans spend eight billion dollars a year on cosmetics, two billion dollars more than is necessary to provide education for every person in the world. There are 4.4 billion people that live in developing countries, three-fifths of them lack safe sewers, a third of the people in developed countries have no access to clean water, one-fourth have no adequate housing, a fifth, 20%, have no health services at all. Europeans spend 11 billion dollars a year on ice cream, that's two billion more than is necessary to provide water and sewers for every person in the world. American and Europeans spend $17 billion a year on our pets. That's $4 billion more than is necessary to provide basic health care and food for every person in the world. My point, my point is that by the way we spend our money, it reveals the condition of our heart that we do not sometimes have an unlimited concept of who our neighbors are. But the one who's received eternal life has an inward compulsion to meet the needs of neighbor and has an unlimited concept of of who falls into that category of neighbor my encouragement to you as you think about this truth is to look at the various spheres in your life. Who are the people in your immediate sphere locally who, who God has, has put in your life that you can meet the, the physical and spiritual needs of? Who are the people in your your ex, ex, extended spheres of influence that, that God providentially brings into your life and, and you see this need and you say, you know what, I, I can meet that. Do you have a, a compulsion to say, I'm going to try to meet the needs of the people that God brings into my life? Are you prepared to meet those unexpected needs that God sovereignly brings into your life? Third truth, third truth is this. The one who has eternal life has a compassion that compels them to action. Compassion, again, is not some vague emotional response. It's not crying a bunch of tears when you see a starving kid on the television screen compassion is an inward compulsion to meet the needs of others and true biblical godly compassion that's possessed by the one who has eternal life reveals itself as needs are met how has god gifted you Do you have an inward desire to meet the needs of others that will lead them to worship Yahweh God? Has God gifted you in ways, provided you with resources that can can be used to further his kingdom as you meet the physical needs of others? I'd encourage you to be preparing your heart to meet those needs. I believe God has placed our church at a very unique point in history. Now, The Lord did not return yesterday, despite the prophecies of some. But that doesn't mean that he's not returning, and we should be very careful about mocking the the coming of the, the return of Jesus Christ. And yet, if the Lord does tarry, which he may very well not, but if he does tarry and allow our church more years of service and in ministry and preparing other people to worship him, I believe that God would have us be using this time right now in our church's history to do things, to prepare us for, if God allows us to have a building and other ministries and expanded as our church grows and matures, I believe this time is a time of preparation for our church. You and I need to be engaged in the biblical counseling ministry, learning how to to, to counsel people and and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those in need and help them them live in a a God-honoring, God-glorifying way. We need to be engaged in our helping the the hungry ministry. We need to be engaged in orphan care ministry. We need to be engaged in these ministries of compassion because there's an inward compulsion to do so. I believe that God is going to do some amazing things in our church over the coming months and, and years. In fact, I, I'm going to be encouraging our church in a few months to, to have many of you sign up to, to care for, for foster kids, to, to sign up to take foster care classes, not because you're necessarily going to bring a foster care kid into your home to live, but so that you can be at a point prepared to meet needs as they, as they arise in our community, be it for a short term or long term. The one who has eternal life has a compassion that compels them to action. And what we see here in the story of Jesus talking to this this lawyer about eternal life is that extraordinary, seemingly impossible acts of compassion should be commonplace among those of us who have received eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the eternal life that we have through faith in him. And now, Father, we pray that you would cause our hearts to respond rightly to this life that you've given us, that we would have assurance of our life through faith in you as we see evidence of a transformed heart. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.